613 laws, regulations, and commands were given according to the scribes and the rabbis and the Pharisees in the Old Testament. 613. Now what is the purpose? What was the purpose of these 613 laws, regulations, and commands given to Israel in the Old Testament? Well, there are a number of them. Firstly, uh, these laws, regulations, and commands were given to Israel in order to govern their life together when they lived and while they lived in the land. If they obeyed, said the Lord, you would be blessed by abundance in the land. If you disobeyed, you would, be ble- you would be given the curses of the Lord and removed from the land. But the Pharisees and the scribes, as they looked at the law, misinterpreted both the purpose and the function of the law when Israel was outside of the land. In their estimation, the law was given to them as a pathway to righteousness before the Lord. Now, some of us might think that, right? Some of us might look at the Old Testament law and say, yeah, God gave this to us as a pathway to righteousness before Him. And it makes sense that if this is what the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbis believed about the law, how they respond to it and how Jesus has to correct them here all makes sense. If that's what they believed, it makes perfect sense that they would try and labor to follow every single one of those 613 laws with a singular devotion and a meticulous attention to every detail that is given in the law of God. And it makes perfect sense, right? The logical byproduct of that is if they follow the law in their own minds and they make every effort to follow the law in their own minds, that they would look at everyone else who's not doing as good of a job as they are and look down upon them as though they were judges over them. We see this happen even in our day, right? In our day. Those of us who think we are really righteous and we have it all together and we are following the laws better than everyone else will look down on those who aren't quite as far along as we are and we will think that somehow we are more righteous than they. That's the way the Pharisees understood the law. And we see an example of this mentality in Luke chapter 18 when we read of the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray and as he was praying, he said this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. Have you ever been tempted to think like that? I'm so thankful that I'm better than that person right there. In praying this way, the Pharisee revealed his misunderstanding of God's law. In praying this way, the Pharisee revealed their understanding of God's law, being that if I follow it, then I am better than others who aren't up to my level. And as a result, I am more acceptable and more righteous than they are in the sight of the Lord. And I'll just say, this is a crushing and heavy weight. And as we will see, Even the scribes and the Pharisees who understood the law this way couldn't live up to their own standard. 
They could not live up to the actual demands of the law, and so they began to shift and to adjust and to misinterpret and to obscure and to misrepresent the law so that they could live up to it in their own minds and then judge other people who didn't. No matter how many times the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis fooled themselves into thinking and believing that they could win God's affection and win God's favor, they failed. Just look at their history, right? Look at Israel's history. They were booted out of the land because they couldn't keep the law. And so the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees simply looked at the Old Testament and reinterpreted many of the Old Testament laws so that in the days of Jesus, when he came, they could actually claim faithfulness to God and claim righteousness in God's sight based on their interpretation and following of the law. And as Jesus proceeds to deliver this Sermon on the Mount, what he does is he demolishes and destroys the idea that obedience to the 613 laws listed for us in the Old Testament could save anyone. And he declared to these Pharisees over these these next six, uh, six sections in the Sermon on the Mount that no matter how exacting, no matter how diligent, and no matter how painstaking the efforts of the Pharisees were, they did not even begin to come close to the standard of righteousness that God requires. Jesus taught the gathered crowds that even the scribes and the Pharisees fell infinitely short of the righteous standard of God, which is perfection. And that's why he starts this section with chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, not even the scribes and Pharisees have it. And he would make this even clearer in chapter 5, verse 48, the very last verse of this chapter, saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're hearing these statements, they ought to raise some alarm in you, as it did for the crowds who were sitting in front of Jesus on this very day. How can anyone be perfect as God is perfect? How can anyone meet or attain such a standard of perfection? It is much too far out of reach. And if you are honest with yourself, and if the Pharisees had been honest with themselves, they would have understood this. I fail at almost every single point of God's law. And the crowds hearing Jesus say these things would have said to themselves, well, how can any of us live a more righteous life than the Pharisees? Especially given the fact that their entire lives, down to the very second, right down to the very detail, is dedicated to obeying God's law. And if, Jesus, you are saying that my righteousness needs to exceed theirs, if their righteousness isn't even enough, what hope does that leave me? The answer to the question is, on your own, it leaves you no hope. You can't follow the law. They didn't follow the law. You don't follow the law. I don't follow the law. And listen, hear me clearly. That's the point. 
That is the point of the law. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees made it their mission to work at living in complete obedience to God's law. However, like everyone who tries to live according to God's law, they could not do it. And so here's what they did. They did what all dishonest hypocrites do. They adjusted it. They obscured it. They misinterpreted it. They redefined it, all of God's laws and commands, in ways that suited them. And we've been there, right? Every single one of us at times have overlooked our failures and amplified others who have, who have failed in order to justify ourselves and make ourselves feel better. This is what we all still do. We interpret God's word and we interpret God's commands in ways that suit us. We are very crafty and cunning in this regard. We have a, uh, we're maestros and virtuosos in this way of interpreting God's commands that lets us feel justified remaining in our sinfulness. Pharisees were no different than us in this regard. And so they, they narrowed the definition and they narrowed the focus and they narrowed the attention of certain laws in order to say, hey, I fulfilled the law of God. I'm obeying the law of God. I'm good. They did that when it suited them. But they also added extra rules to certain commands when it suited them as well. Rules that they could follow in everyone else's sight, which would make them seem a little extra righteous in the eyes of everyone else. And when everybody tells you all of the time, man, you guys are righteous. Man, you're doing a good job. Man, you know, you could start to let that go to your head. And so you got these Pharisees walking around with huge heads and fully misinterpreting God's law. What a situation to live in. They obscured, as we learned a few weeks ago, the, and adjusted the command not to murder. That's what we saw in 521, right? We saw that in 521. And they did this by limiting the scope of the command to the actual act of murder itself. So they could say to themselves, hey, I haven't murdered anyone. I'm pretty good. And Jesus, in this sermon, calls out their obscuring of the command and reiterated the true purpose and the real intention of the command, which was not simply to just permit murdering somebody else, but also to press people to keep watch over their hearts, to root out and eliminate all anger, all bitterness, all resentment, all hostility towards a fellow brother. It's not just murder itself that is liable to the judgment of God and that endangers the soul. It is the dispositions of anger, bitterness, resentment, and hostility towards a fellow brother that are just as liable to the judgment of God as the act of murder itself. That's what Jesus said in chapter 5, 21 to 26. And the same went for adultery, starting in verse 27. The scribes and the Pharisees had once again reduced the scope of Jesus's or the Lord's command to the actual act of adultery. In Matthew 5:27, and Jesus once again called out their dishonest teachings, pointing people to the true target and intention of the command, which was again the heart. Adultery is not simply the act of engaging in physical relations with someone who is not your spouse. It begins well before that in the heart. And this command in its original form was designed to lead people to guard their hearts against, to root out, and to put to death any impure, idolatrous, and sinful thoughts 
which according to Jesus are just as liable to judgment as the act of adultery itself. So you see how the Pharisees had taken laws and just obscured their, their meanings so that they could, they could say, I've followed them. And last week we looked at Christ's correction of the scribes and Pharisees regarding marriage and divorce. You see, the Pharisees taught that all you had to do to follow, to, to be obedient to the Lord is do what Moses commanded, which, by the way, wasn't a command. And they said they interpreted the words of Moses as a command to hand your wife a certificate of divorce whenever you didn't like her or didn't want to be married to her anymore. And they thought that if I just tuck that certificate of divorce into that woman's hand, then I'm free and I'm clear and God and I are good. And Christ, once again, corrected their misinterpretation by, in essence, revealing that at marriage we enter into a lifelong relationship of exclusive intimacy with our spouse. And this relationship is your priority. It takes priority over every other relationship in your life except that of Christ. Your spouse takes priority over your mother and your father. Your spouse takes priority over your children, over your friends, over every other relationship in your life. And even more, Scripture tells us that God pronounces a husband and a wife one flesh. It is a bond so deep. It is a bond that is pronounced over us by God himself and so therefore cannot and will not be broken. The marriage covenant... This marriage commitment is to be worked at, to be held on to, no matter what might come. Your spouse's failings, sins, or shortcomings are no reason to, to try and break that union. You commit to your spouse, and your spouse commits to you. And this one flesh union pronounced upon you is God's work. The text tells us that it is God who joins people together. We leave our families and we cleave to our spouse and God unites what was once two fleshes into one. And this is why all remarriage while your spouse still lives, Jesus calls adultery. Marriage is ordained by God as an unbreakable bond, a lifelong exclusive bond broken only by death. And so here you see Jesus correcting all of the misinterpretations of the Pharisee, Pharisees, rabbis, and scribes in terms of the law. The Pharisees interpreted all these laws and defined all these laws in such a way because they did not understand the role and the purpose or the function of the law in the life of God's people. They looked at the law as a way to win the favor and approval of God. And so they interpreted the law in such a way that they could follow it and therefore deceive and fool themselves and others into believing that they were actually living righteous, God-honoring, God-obedient lives in their own strength. And Jesus looked at them square in the face and dismantled the entire system. He destroyed their entire foundation of righteousness by revealing their consistent and continual misunderstanding of the law's function. And listen, the law was never, ever meant to save anyone. 
Nor was the law ever meant to make anyone righteous before the Lord. The law performed, and the law still performs to this very day, what we call a revelatory function, meaning it reveals certain truths, but cannot address or fix those truths. Right? It reveals truths, but is powerless to fix those truths it reveals. So here are some truths that are revealed to us by the law of God. One, that we are unable to win or secure God's affection or any level of righteousness before God by keeping it. This is a truth that the Apostle Paul made clear to us in Romans 3, verse, chapter 3, verse 20, when he wrote this to the Roman church. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. Pretty clear, right? Justified there means declared righteous. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So do you see that? The law is powerless to perform the, uh, to, to bring about righteousness. Instead, the law brings knowledge of sin. It's a revelatory, it serves a revelatory function. So did you hear that? No one, no human being will ever be justified in the sight of God by works of the law. Instead, the law brings knowledge of sin, and as Paul wrote in just the verse earlier, 319, one of the functions of the law is to stop every mouth and to hold the entire world accountable to God. This is the function of the law, to hold us accountable to God and to stop our mouths and to reveal our sinfulness. You see, the law serves to reveal to us what we really are. And as much as our culture and the spirit of the age disagrees with it, the law reveals that you and I, apart from Christ, are worthless, dirty, filthy, odious, repulsive sinners before the Lord. And that might be difficult for some of us to hear because we are fed a steady diet of just how awesome we are, just how special we are. But here's the truth. We're not that special. God is special. And because He's special, He brings us to this place where we recognize Him and come to Him. But we're getting ahead of ourselves there. With the fact that we cannot be saved by the law and the fact that we are dirty, repulsive sinners before the law revealed to us by that law, what the law then does is it moves us to recognize that we need some sort of help. We need help outside of ourselves. We need some sort of external righteousness. We need someone or something outside of us to purchase the required righteousness that we cannot achieve on our own. And we need that someone to both apply that righteousness to us and to create it in us. And when we recognize this function of the law, you know what? Let me just tell you, it's actually a liberating experience. Because to recognize that we can't win God's favor by, acts, by obedience to the law and to recognize that we are sinners before God, what that does is it pushes us in the direction of the only source of perfect righteousness. Jesus, God come in the flesh. As we recognize our desperate wickedness and sinfulness, 
We turn to Christ in faith. And that sinfulness is dealt with in and by the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the righteous perfection that is required is gifted to us and given to us and credited to us by that same Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important to note because even in our days, so many of us have a pharisaical view of God's law. What I mean by that is we live as though our failure to keep God's law causes God to turn his face from us in anger and our success in keeping God's law causes God to turn his face towards us and love us just a little bit more. But we must always remember that as true children of God, his perfect love for us is neither increased by our acts of obedience or diminished by our shortfalls. If you are a true believer in Christ, you will strive to obey Him. You will strive to live according to His commands. You will strive to please Him in your life. But you will recognize that when you fall, Jesus is always there to pick you up when you come to Him, fall before Him, and turn from your sin. And He lifts you up and loves to forgive. And the Apostle Paul who experienced the same struggles as we do, put this process into words. When he wrote to the Roman church describing his, and by extension our, difficulties, saying this in Romans chapter 7. Again, you should have this highlighted in your, in your, in your Bibles. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 15, he says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing that I hate. Anyone? Anyone? In verse 18, he said, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Anyone? I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. 20, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul did and didn't do in that text. He didn't try to adjust the law. He didn't try to misinterpret it in such a way that he could feel good about himself for having followed it. No, the Apostle Paul gave us a model when he let the law perform its function. And what is the function that it performed for him? It revealed to him his wretchedness. Did you see that? Oh, wretched man that I am. And when, he re when his wretchedness was revealed to him, this led him to ask the all-important question, who can save me from this body of death? And it led him to the only answer that exists for this question, God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then it leads to the pouring out of praise to God. So to think that the law is some sort of mechanism by which we increase or decrease God's affection for us as his children is to make the same error that the scribes and the Pharisees made with, in regards to the law. The law is designed to bring us to the place of the tax collector in Luke 18, not the Pharisee. Do you remember the tax collector in Luke 18? We read earlier on about that Pharisee who stood and said, I'm thankful I'm not like this guy. But there's another guy in that scene as well, this tax collector. And here's what he prayed in Luke 18, 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
That's what the law brings us to. And Jesus, summing this up, said in Luke 18, 14, I tell you that the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the, than the other. Do you see what the point of the law is? The righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees is not purchased by some external obedience to the law. They tried that and they failed miserably. And I can probably say with great certainty that you've tried that and failed miserably as well. And so they went so far as to change and create complex systems and loopholes where they can actually disobey the laws, but at the same time claiming to keep those laws. Instead, the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, it's not secured by, by your obedience to the law. Obedience to the law is a result of the righteousness that is given to us by Christ. So when we recognize... So we reckon, when we recognize our sinfulness before the Lord thanks to the law and call out to Jesus in faith and in trust, the one who both lived and died to set us free and to secure the righteousness that we cannot secure for ourselves, the law has therefore then performed its function in your life. So many of us get dejected and depressed and upset, Right? by our falling short. We can go days sometimes. Maybe we didn't read our Bible. Maybe we didn't pray. Maybe we fell into a, 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 a sin that we've fallen into a thousand times before. And we can allow that to bring us into a season of just downward spiral, downward spiral. And the enemy pops in at those moments and says, do you think the Lord can love someone like you? Really? His face is turned so far from you that you don't even get it. And we get to that place because we've misunderstood the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law isn't to make you feel good about yourself. The purpose is the, of the law is to reveal that you ought not to feel good about yourself. And then to bring you to the place where you look to Jesus and because you know that he has done everything necessary, that he drank the cup of God's wrath right down to the very dregs, that his mercy and his grace cover your every single sin, every single misstep, every single thought, every sing, everything, that you look to him and you find your rest and your peace and your comfort and your joy in him. And the more that you recognize your sinfulness, because listen, as you move through life, sometimes we think that as, I'm, as I stay a Christian longer, I'm going to start feeling better about myself as I keep defeating more and more and more sins. No, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will defeat different sins in your life, but guess what? You're just going to realize that there were more. And you will realize that you were far more sinful than you could have ever imagined when you came to Jesus in saving faith. And what that does is it amplifies your joy in Christ. It amplifies your gratitude to Christ. It amplifies your view of Christ because you realize that his grace dispensed upon you was far greater than you could have ever imagined as well. And this is what the law is supposed to do in your life. But the Pharisees couldn't and wouldn't bring themselves to this realization and instead did everything possible to create a system whereby they fooled themselves into thinking they were righteous when they really weren't. And as we come to the... That's just the intro, sorry about that. As we come to the next subject in the sermon, which is the making and the taking of oaths, 
we are once again confronted by the, Pharisee, the error of the Pharisees and their misinterpretation of the text. And once again, we see that rather than accept the fact that they could not live up to the standards of the law, which is in this section, here it is, we're going to spend a few more pages on it, but I'll give it to you, tell the truth all the time. That's the main point. If you're going to write anything down from this sermon, write that down. Tell the truth all the time. The Pharisees refused to do so, and so they created a complex system of oath-taking and oath-making that minimized people's trust in their word, that allowed them to get away with lying even though they were claiming to be truthful, all the while thinking of themselves as people of truth. You see that? They were liars who created a system whereby which whereby they could lie, justify themselves in that lie, and then still enter, walk towards the Lord, and claim that they were truth-tellers. Humanity will go to the greatest of lengths to justify ourselves in sin, won't we? And so Jesus begins in Matthew 5.33, Again you have heard it said, that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now you got to remember, right? Jesus had just finished saying in chapter 5, verse 17, that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So when he declares here that you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's not correcting the Old Testament law. The law of God is perfect, the law of God requires no correction, but what does require correction are the oral traditions of the rabbis, traditions and interpretations that had developed around the laws of God and had been passed down for generations in the synagogues. See, the rabbis would go into the synagogues and teach the average people week in and week out. But the average Jew of this day didn't have enough money to purchase scrolls of the Old Testament. You couldn't put the whole Old Testament in one scroll, so you had to buy a number of scrolls, and that was very, 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 very expensive. And so the people would sit, and they'd listen to the rabbis teach them, but they would teach them their interpretations of the law and uh, alongside of the law, and they would say that our interpretations are just as authoritative, and it got to the point where the average person couldn't distinguish between what was actually written in God's Word and what was actually the interpretation of God's Word by those rabbis. And so these traditions were passed down from of old by interpreters of Moses and far from clarifying the meaning of those laws, they only served to obscure their meaning. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall not swear falsely. Now interestingly, these words are not actually found in God's law, but are instead accurately, I'll give them that, it was accurately drawn from a number of texts. For example, Leviticus 19.12 reads like this. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Or Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds 
out of his mouth. Or Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And finally, Deuteronomy 23. If you guys want a record of these, I'll give them to you after the service. Deuteronomy 23, 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So in our day, some have misinterpreted the intention of these texts and sought to make this a prohibition against oaths of any kind, anywhere, at all times. That misses the point of what Jesus is doing here. Oaths are, to be, to be perfectly honest, in certain instances legitimate and perfectly acceptable. We see this in Scripture, right? As God himself swore an oath when entering into a covenant with Abraham. Do you remember that? In Genesis 22, verses 15 to 17, we read, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And the writer of Hebrews would bring this up again as a testament to God's authority and faithfulness in Hebrews chapter 6. When God made this oath to Abraham, he was highlighting both the seriousness and the truthfulness along with the reliability of what he was saying. See, the oath here was meant to inspire a greater confidence in Abraham as it drew attention to the characteristics and attributes of God. And so the Lord underscored and called Abraham's attention to faithfulness. Faithfulness. God's faithfulness to his word. And so we know that oaths in our day are when with gravity and seriousness used to highlight and call attention to our increased commitment to faithfulness and honesty, we don't have a problem with those. Just, in, just in, by and large in practice, in the court system, nobody would have a difficulty with saying, um, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. We would all do that because we know that we are taking a serious oath highlighting our dedication to the telling of truth. And we also, if you're married here, hopefully you took an oath, right? No. In fact, when we get married, we make a number of oaths and promises to perform in our marriage. For example, when I'm performing a wedding, I'll say, uh, in taking blank to be your spouse, do you so promise to honor to love and to cherish them in sickness as in health, in poverty as in wealth, in seasons of hardship as in seasons of blessing until death parts you. That's an oath we take to our spouse. And I expect the participants to answer yes in those cases and to take this oath seriously. So when are oaths prohibited then? Well, John Calvin gives a good description. He wrote, All oaths are unlawful, which in any way abuse and profane the sacred name of God, for which they ought to have, the, ought to have had the effect of producing deeper reverence. 
Okay? So the right effect of an oath is to highlight truthfulness and to bring about deeper reverence. But the Pharisees, in contrast, used, used oaths as a way to look good in the eyes of everyone around them. They used oaths as a way of highlighting themselves and their perceived truthfulness in the eyes of everyone around them, far from using oaths for their actual purpose, which is to promote reverence and highlight honesty, truthfulness, and reliability. The pharisaical system of oaths in this day was one that simply masked deception and promoted lies. And over time, they created this complex and convoluted system of oaths and vows Far from highlighting honesty, vows became so commonplace in Jewish society as a result that no one took them seriously and they became the mark of someone who was trying to deceive you rather than someone who was trying to highlight honesty. And how did that happen? Well, I'm so glad you asked. The primary intention of the texts from which the rabbis had drawn their teaching on oaths, for example, Leviticus. Remember, we brought up Leviticus. Here's what we read in Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. See, the, the original intention of these texts was to highlight and center on truthfulness and honesty in the heart of the one making the oath. Right? But over time, the Pharisees shifted from the focus of the heart and intention of the person making the oath to actually live out that oath to the phrase, the name of the Lord. Right? They focused on the name of the Lord and then created a system of oaths whereby if you use the name of the Lord in your oath, that was binding, but if you used other things, like you substituted something else in, the, in place of the name of the Lord, then those oaths had a varying degrees of, of reliability and stick to And so it got to the point where Jews made oaths all the time. Oaths in the name of the Lord were separate and of higher importance, say, than oaths made by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. They would choose to swear by whatever impressed the hearer that was in front of them most. And they were cagey and cunning with their words. They tried to make oaths that got them what they wanted from the other person, but would leave them a loophole to get out of that oath later on when it came time to pay up. And the Mishnah which is the written record of the Jewish oral traditions and teachings of the rabbis. In here, you will see rabbi after rabbi explaining and debating and arguing about how to actually apply and understand all of God's laws. They, in this book, we, have a, an ex, uh, we are given an extensive treatment of the rabbinical understanding of oaths and the convoluted system that they had created. So I'm just going to give you some of what I, what, what's in here, okay? The Mishnah, which is, again, the discussions of the rabbis, said this, says this. It says, four kinds of vows the sages have declared not to be binding. Vows of incitement, that means when someone threatens you into making a vow. Okay, I can kind of get that one, right? Vows of exaggeration. Vows made in error. And vows, listen to this one, vows that cannot be fulfilled by reason of constraint. Now, that means events that came up in your life that make it difficult to keep that vow. 
So with so many options, how do you think the average oath taker at this time appealed to one of these declarations to get out of a vow that they had made? Oh, you know what? Um, there's some constraint in my life. I can't pay you what I vowed to you. Oh, I exaggerated. I didn't mean 20 shekels. I meant 19 shekels. I'm out. I don't have to follow the vow. And all of this chipped away at the faithfulness that, or the trust that people had in each other's word. In fact, listen to this. The Mishnah says, one of the rabbis says, a man may say, let no vow that I vow hereafter be binding, provided that he is mindful of this in the moment of his vow. Did you get what he just said there? If you wanted to, you could say between you and the Lord, Lord, let no vow that I make from this day forward be binding upon me. And the rabbi said, yeah, that's legit. It was entirely possible in this day that someone who had given you an oath had already in the past said to the Lord, make all my future oaths not binding upon me. And how would the person know? How would the person that had been given that oath know that? Which again chipped away at the trust people had and have in each other's word. An even more complicated system followed. Listen, according to the rabbis, if a man vowed to abstain from food that was cooked, he could eat what was roasted. If a man said, I vowed to abstain from food that was cooked in a pot, he was only forbidden that food if it had been boiled in that pot, not if it was roasted or cooked in some other way in that pot. If a man vowed to abstain from preserved food, he was only forbidden to eat preserved vegetables. How is that a sacrifice? I don't know. If a man vowed to abstain from fish, he could still eat pickled and chopped fish. If a man decided, vowed that he was going to abstain from wine, he could still drink wine made of apples. If a man said, I vow never to enter the, my house, he was still permitted to enter the upper room of his house. And how do you do that without entering the house? I don't know. And if a man vowed to abstain from a bed, he was permitted to sleep on a couch. So, every vow a person that might make in this time had some loophole written in it that ensured that they could look like they were maintaining their vow all the while continuing their, on with their lives almost as though they had made no vow at all. You don't think that if some guy said, I vow not to sleep in a bed, that they wouldn't find the most comfortable couch, probably more comfortable than their bed to sleep in? This is, this is how... This is how degenerated this whole system got. And all the while, they convinced themselves, I'm such an honest fellow. And not only, it, it goes even further. This complicated system of vows also had a scale of liability. Listen to what the, the last quote from the Mishnah says this. If a man said, I swear that I will not eat, and he then ate wheat bread and bread of barley and bread of spelt. He's only liable on one count. But if he said, I swear I will not eat wheat bread, bread of barley, and bread of spelt, he's liable on every count. 
Do you see the caginess with the words that they're using there? If you speak in generalities, you're less liable than if you speak in specifics. Do you see how difficult it would have been for people to trust each other's word? You see how difficult it would have been to keep track of the vows that you'd entered into when every vow was so cunningly designed and cunningly devised to have loopholes by which one or both parties could justify and convince themselves that they were fulfilling their word while not fulfilling their word. However, the only vow a Jewish person was required to keep absolutely The oath that was binding in every single circumstance was an oath made in the name of the Lord. So this became rarer as they substituted his name for other things. You see that in the text. That's why Jesus will say, heaven, earth, and Jerusalem. And Jesus would reveal even more in Matthew 23, in 16 16 to 22. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 16, and 22. He says this, Speaking to the Pharisees, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. That's an important phrase. When you swear on the temple, you swear by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So twice there, right? When you swear by this thing, you're actually swearing by him. Now remember that because that's important. So did you see the convoluted system here? If 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 I swear by the altar, then I'm not bound by that oath. But if I swear by the the goat that's on the altar, then I better I better keep that oath. It's this complicated and convoluted system of oath taking whereby dishonesty, deception, and outright lying were covered over and justified that Jesus is rebuking here in this text. When he said in, our next ver- in, our, in the next verses of our text for this morning, he says, but I say to you, right? Look at verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So when he says, don't take an oath at all, he's connecting it to these three clauses here. So while the scribes and the Pharisees made such small and minute distinctions between oaths and what was called upon to witness to an oath, the gold of the temple or the temple itself, Christ here puts it all to rest and simplifies it. It doesn't matter what you call upon in your oath-making. Why? Because it all belongs to God and is therefore an oath in His name. To assume that one could simply substitute the name of God for heaven or earth or Jerusalem and therefore make that oath less binding is a lie, Jesus is saying. Oathmakers swear by the name of God regardless of what they swear by. If they swear by heaven, 
Look at the text. Heaven is the abode of God. Heaven is where his throne resides. God lays claim on heaven and therefore to invoke heaven is to invoke God and to swear by his name and you are liable to fulfill your oath. If you swear by earth, earth meaning the actual planet, it is the footstool of God. Therefore to invoke earth in an oath is to invoke the name of God and you are liable to fulfill that oath. If you swear by Jerusalem, it is the city of the great king. Jerusalem is where God has chosen to make his presence visible on earth in the temple and in the great king, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so to invoke Jerusalem is to invoke the name of God. You see, all of these vows are as binding an oath as those where the name of the Lord is expressly used. And Jesus continues in verse 36, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. The Mishnah, oh, I got another quote from the Mishnah. The Mishnah, speaking about oaths made by your head, states this, An oath made by the head may be retracted. However, Jesus makes it clear that the human body is also God's domain. He owns it. He's sovereign over the workings of your body to the point that he makes the hairs on your head white or black. To make an oath by your head is to also invoke the name of the God who has authority over your head. You are liable to fulfill that oath. So if you watch, right? Jesus started this process by saying heaven and he worked his way down to earth, worked his way down to Jerusalem, worked his way down to your head as a way of saying it does not matter how big or how small what you do, what you bring to an oath is. These are all God's domains. No matter the distance, no matter the scale, no matter what it is, only God has claim. And so by taking an oath on anything is to invoke his sovereign name and is a result, as a result, binding. Now this is a severe denunciation of the Pharisaic practice of basically making a system where lying is acceptable. And it's an affirmation of this truth. Every single word we utter is important. All of our words must be truthful because every single one of our words is spoken before and in the presence of our Lord. Every word we speak is an invocation of the Lord's name if we claim to be his sons and daughters. Which is why Jesus moves on in verse 36 to say, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So you get, are you understanding the, what's happening here? Every word we speak, saints, is an invoking of God's name. And therefore, every word spoken in the name of the Lord, and therefore a word spoken in the name of the Lord, is spoken before him and is spoken, spoken in representation of him. So what does that mean for us when we lie? It means that we have taken the name of the Lord in vain. So many assume that this idea of taking the Lord's name in vain simply means don't say his name in anger or don't use his name as a cuss word. Well, that's a grievous sin and it's covered in the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. It goes so much further than that. It goes so much further than that outward display. It goes to the very state of our hearts. It's not just using the Lord's name in anger. It's every word we speak. 
This is the righteousness that is of a different quality than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That every one of our words as sons and daughters of Christ are measured out as honest, truthful, reliable, and faithful. There are no attempts in our words to deceive one another and no efforts to engage in caginess and we have all intentions and make all efforts to follow through on that which we speak. All of our words must be honest. All of our dealings with each other must be genuine. This is the requirement of God from the citizens of his kingdom that we be known as people of integrity and truthfulness to such a high degree that we don't even need oaths or vows or crossing my heart and hope to die or pinky swears or whatever else to validate our words. We are called to be those who recognize that truth has no degrees and no shades. Truth is truth and truth is what we speak. We recognize that half-truths are merely lies and are are taking of the Lord's name in vain. We realize that misrepresentations of truth are lies and by doing so we take the Lord's name in vain. We realize that little white lies are lies and are a taking of the Lord's name in vain. We realize that exaggerations are lies and a taking of the Lord's name in vain. We realize that flattery, as Kathleen, Pastor Robert's wife, uh, defined it to me, flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. It's a great definition. Flattery is a lie and a taking of our Lord's name in vain. Are we getting the gravity of what Jesus is saying here. This is a quality that is next to impossible for us in our own strength. The standard of God for you and for me is one of absolute truthfulness because every one of our words invokes his name. And every one of our words are spoken as his representatives on earth. And now listen, in a day when everyone's word is suspect when we lack trust in pretty much every institution and all the people around us, when our instinct, our first instinct is to assume the worst and to doubt the truthfulness of other people's words, when we don't, as a society, trust anyone, we don't trust our media outlets, we don't trust our governments, we don't trust, our, we don't trust anyone, we don't trust other people, what a contrast it would be for us, right, to be known as those who are simply honest and unvarnished in our truthfulness. What a contrast it would be for us to be known in this world, to be known among our relatives, to be known in our society as those who are simply truthful all the time. It's like that orange juice. Have you seen that in the store? Simply orange. Right? You got all those different juices that are filled with all of those preservatives and all of those different things and every time I see simply orange I'm like, oh that's nice. What a contrast. It's just orange juice. For us, it's, they are just truthful and when they say something, I believe it. And in closing, I just want to say, it's not going to be easy. Truthfulness is not easy. And we know this, which is why we've come up with misrepresentations, little white lies, exaggerations, flattery, and half-truths. Because we know that truthfulness is not easy. And this is because God's truth so 
clearly strikes at the pride that is welled up in every single one of us. And truth, when we speak it to each other, has a tendency to promote discord sometimes. Truth is going to be difficult. And it's so common to become the enemy instead of the friend to those with whom we are truthful. Isn't it? To become the enemy instead of the friend of our fellow sinners to whom we speak truth. All because we do, in fact, live a life of truthfulness. And just so you know, I want you to know, you're not alone in this difficulty. The Apostle Paul, when laboring among the Galatian church, labored to be a man of truth and to speak truth to them with no misrepresentations and no exaggerations. And in Galatians 4, you've got some of the most heart-wrenching words for an apostle or church leader to hear among or from those to whom you've ministered. And he said this, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's how close they were. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? See, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. And listen, if you are known as a truth teller, here is, you will feel the same burden that the Apostle Paul felt. But know this, in the end, it's worth it. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There's an anguish that comes with being a people of truth. But listen, it's worth it. In a day when everyone's word is suspect, let us be known as a people whose every single word is completely, totally, fully, always reliable. Let us be that contrast to the world as we represent Jesus to it, who himself was always truthful, reliable, faithful. Father, we thank you and we praise you this morning for teaching us once again in this Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for everything that you have revealed to us here. And we know, Lord, that this righteousness and we know, Lord, that this truthfulness, that none of it can be purchased or secured by us in our own strength. We are so desperately in need of the empowerment of your spirit to be people of truth and to be people who recognize that we need you so much. And so we ask, Lord, for extra measures of your spirit as we leave this place today to become people of truth, to labor at it, to strive for it, to work at it, to catch ourselves when we're exaggerating and to stop ourselves when we're flattering and to keep ourselves from misrepresenting and being cagey with truth. Let us be known as people of truth who represent you the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you in our Savior's name. Amen.